It's Midday Magazine for Wednesday, August 23rd. I'm Hannah Floor. A list of candidates for Petersburg's 2023 municipal election is in, and it is long. KFSK's Shelby Herbert runs down the high volume of residents who are running for 20 open seats. It's 30 minutes out from the filing deadline, and it's mostly all quiet at the municipal building. Kaylee Torson is working the front desk. She says she's processed a few last-minute applicants, but folks have been sneaking in throughout the month. Um, we've been pretty steady with people coming in. I mean, it's nice out and most people are around town doing bills and stuff like that. So that's been my main busyness. But we've had a few people turn in some um, candidacy paperwork. In Petersburg, many aspiring borough officials have held their cards close, refusing to announce their intentions until after the deadline to file has passed. But their relative silence camouflages their numbers. Debbie Thompson is the borough clerk, and she's supervising the municipal election. As the window to file for candidacy closed, she said she's pretty thrilled about the high level of participation this year. Yes, absolutely. Every seat has a candidate, and some are contested. So we have a really great turnout this year, and it's exciting. It'll be a good election. Without any further ado, here is the final list of candidates for Petersburg's upcoming municipal election. The competition is fiercest for the Public Safety Advisory Board, with five residents running for two seats. Their names are Stanley Hjort, Jacob Slavin, Russell Tinas, Tony Vinson, and Mark Tusillo. And four candidates for the Parks and Recreation Advisory Board, Amber Burrell, Adam Castor, Greg Kowalski, and Sonny Rice. There are five for the Library Board, Mary Ellen Anderson, Tina Bushman, Marilyn Manishmiucci, Lizzie Thompson, and Joanne Tinas. Over to the Harbor Board, there are three positions on the table, each lasting three years. And three people have put their name in the hat. Bob Martin chairs the board. He's running for re-election. Joel Randrup and former board member Scott Roberge are also in the mix. There's one three-year term on Petersburg's school board. Katie Holmland, the board's sitting vice president, is running for it unopposed. There are two three-year terms and one one-year term opening up on the hospital board. The terms of hospital board president Jared Cook and secretary Marlene Cushing are expiring. They're both running for re-election. The new contenders are Micah Hasbrook, Don Koenigs, and Jim Roberts. Three people are up for three seats on the Planning Commission, Marietta Davis, Chris Fry, and Heather O'Neill. And finally, for the Borough Assembly, the seats of members Jeff Miucci and Dave Kensinger are up for re-election. A term on the Borough Assembly lasts three years. It's also the only office on the list that includes any kind of compensation at $150 per regular meeting. But Assembly members don't get paid for any special meetings or work sessions they have to attend. This year's new contenders are Rick Perkins, Rob Schwartz, and former Assembly member Jay Stanton Greger. Jeff Miucci will run for re-election. Dave Kensinger will not. 
That's all for this year's candidates. But Borough Clerk Debbie Thompson says she's still looking for volunteers to lend a hand on Election Day. So you can be a registrar at the front tables when you first come in. They will look up and make sure that the person wanting to vote is a registered voter and have them sign the log and then hand them a ballot. You can be by the black box, which is the ballot reader, and just uh, stand there to make sure everything goes well when people come and bring their ballots and stick it into the reader. Be there to help if anything goes wrong. And and uh, then, then there's a floater to help people who have questions or, or maybe are not on the list but would like to vote anyway. So there's different ways to vote. Candidates have until 4.30 p.m. on Friday, August 25th to withdraw from the race. The next municipal election is Tuesday, October 3rd. In Petersburg, I'm Shelby Herbert. A crew member on an American Seafoods factory trawler died at sea last week, likely from an ammonia leak on board. U.S. Coast Guard Petty Officer John Highwater, Highwater says they received a satellite call from the Northern Eagle at about 4.30 in the morning on Friday. Reporting that one of their crew members was found unresponsive in one of their engineering spaces. They believe there was an ammonia leak somewhere on the vessel that caused the uh, person to fall unconscious. The nearly 350-foot vessel was already en route to Unalaska when they made the call to the Coast Guard. Highwater says it would have taken the U.S. Coast Guard crew longer to reach the vessel than for the trawler to head to port. They reached Unalaska at about 5 a.m. the next day. That's roughly 24 hours after the distress call. From there, the case was turned over to local responders. Here's Unalaska Fire Chief Ben Knowles. The fire department, uh, along with uh, NOAA, the United States Coast Guard Marine Safety Detachment and the Alaska State Troopers boarded the vessel around uh, 6 a.m. once they were all tied up and began the investigation into the incident. Noel says the crew member was pronounced dead prior to arriving at the port. He says the alleged ammonia leak was an isolated event and there is no ongoing threat to the public. The Alaska Fire Department assisted the state troopers with their investigation. They provided de- decontamination and offered grief counseling for the vessel, according to Knowles. He says the American Seafoods brought the family of the deceased crew member to the island. We are here to offer our services to them, and uh, we're hoping that um, they can find some, some healing in this process. Knowles says the investigation is ongoing. American Seafoods did not respond to a request for comment. U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg spent the last day of his Alaska trip in Southeast. As Katie Anastas reports, he focused on the ferry system during a stop at the Juneau Airport. On his last day in Alaska, Buttigieg and Senator Lisa Murkowski took the MV Hubbard from Juneau to Haines. But after they got off the state's newest ferry, it stopped running. One of its generators had been shutting down intermittently. I didn't touch a thing, I swear. (laughs) Murkowski and Buttigieg spoke to reporters on the tarmac at Juno Seaplane Terminal. In most of the ferry fleet, what we're worrying, worrying about is its age. Uh, but when uh, a new vessel encounters issues, that's also a reminder that uh, uh, having a new vessel is uh, not all there is to the story. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, we're creating the framework where uh, operations, maintenance, and capital planning can, uh, can go well. Buttigieg spent three days in Alaska. He traveled to Kotzebue, Anchorage, and Haines learning about the state's transportation needs, and highlighting projects made possible by the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. The bill allocated more than $285 million to Alaska's ferry system to replace the Testamina, 
modernize four other ferries, upgrade rural ferry terminals, and support operations. Those projects require a funding match from the state of about $105 million. The state says that money will come from a few different sources. Uh, you know, states that, that put forward uh, a healthy uh, level of skin in the game on their side are often able to unlock that much more federal support on our side. But Murkowski said staffing remains a challenge for the ferry system. Its reservation center reduced hours this month due to staff shortages, and they're only taking reservations on the Kennecott through February because of a crew shortage. And you can't operate a ferry. Whether it's in good running condition or whether it's a 54-year-old ship, you can't operate it without the men and women. The ferry system could have even more sources of federal funding. The U.S. Department of Transportation announced Wednesday that 6,500 miles of navigable waterways in southwestern and northern Alaska would be added to the United States Marine Highway Program. When you enter into the uh, uh, Marine Highway Program, you're part of a national designation that can mean greater access to grant funding and policy attention. The designation doesn't add new ferry service, but it could open up funding for future transportation projects in those regions. In Juneau, I'm Katie Anastas. This summer, the National Guard Armory in Kodiak was renamed to honor Daniel Harmon. Harmon was a lutic and a soldier from Woody Island on the Kodiak Archipelago. He was killed in action during the Vietnam War and honored with three bronze stars, one of the highest military honors. Two were awarded with valor, which denotes heroism in combat. Kirsten Dobroth attended the ceremony and has this story on the significance of the renaming. It was standing room only at Kodiak's National Guard Armory to commemorate Daniel Lee Harmon, but at times you could have heard a pin drop. The ceremony was a mix of a lutic tradition and military honor. After a memorial inside the building, attendees filed outside for a short dedication in front of the new sign that now bears Harmon's name. Major General Torrent Sachs is the commander of Alaska's National Guard. He gave remarks during the dedication. As of today, it is the Daniel Harmon Armory. Native people have served in every armed conflict in American history. And of the 42,000 Native Americans who served in the Vietnam War, nearly all of them volunteered, including Harmon. He was an Army Ranger, and he was killed in action in Vietnam in 1967. Harmon was part of the Army's long-range reconnaissance patrols, known as LERPs. Missions were dangerous. Teams of about six soldiers would be gone for days at a time, trekking deep into the jungle to report on enemy movement. He was just days away from R&R back in the U.S. when he volunteered for his final mission. Members of his platoon say Harmon and his team had climbed atop a tank for an extraction when it got stuck in a minefield, and they came under heavy fire. Harmon dragged one unconscious soldier to a nearby ditch. He was climbing back onto the tank to pull off the other when he was shot twice in the chest. Those were Harmon's final moments. He was 21 years old. The soldier he saved, named Ron Kuhn, would survive. His son, Michael Kuhn, was born a couple years later and spoke at the renaming. If he hadn't done those, what he did, saved my father's life, I wouldn't exist. I wouldn't be a father. I wouldn't be a husband, and I would be a grandfather. 
Woody Island rises from the sea like a spruce-covered mound, just a skiff's ride away from the city of Kodiak. You can see whales and snow-capped mountains from its beaches. It's where Harmon grew up, one of the youngest of nine children. Lisa Monroe is Harmon's niece. She never met her uncle, but says his presence was always there growing up. They all hold Danny in, in such high regard, and he holds a special place because he was the, the, the soft-hearted one, you know. I mean, he was just always part of the conversation. Monroe says her mother often talked about the family cabin on Woody Island and her uncle Danny. He was a skilled hunter and fisherman. Family members remember him as thoughtful, quiet, and artistic. They would also talk about how he loved animals and was almost an animal whisperer. Oftentimes, those animals would end up coming home with him. One of the stories she told me uh, quite repetitively was how he found a an injured rabbit and he had put it in a shoebox and put it under his bed and nursed it back to health. That's Harmon's nephew, Lauren Castillo, the son of another one of Harmon's sisters. Harmon wrote to his sister frequently from Vietnam, each letter signed in long, looping cursive from her loving brother, with doodles and anecdotes from the field. In one letter, he tells her he volunteered for a reactionary force with his brigade. Being me, I volunteered, he wrote. I guess somebody has to do it, even if it is people or guys like me. His niece, Monroe, says his volunteerism is something that's never been lost on his family. He volunteered for the service. He volunteered for Vietnam. He volunteered to join uh, the LERPs, you know, and he volunteered for that last mission. That was Danny. Harmon often has a feather tucked into his camo hat in photos from Vietnam and a big kiddish grin. Other soldiers called him a ghost for his abilities navigating the rugged Southeast Asian terrain. When everyone was nervous, they said he stayed calm, skills they attributed to his upbringing in Alaska. Monroe says it all comes back to Woody Island. I consider it part of um, being from the island. It was everybody looked out for it, you know, each other. It took years of advocacy from local organizations and native elders in Kodiak for Harmon's name to be memorialized at the armory. Harmon's nephew, Castillo, says the renaming is significant from both a military perspective and as an Alaskan native. He says his mother was ecstatic when she heard it would happen. He was somebody that she looked up to her whole life. He feels a little bit cheated that that his life was cut short. Um, She understands his decision, but... It's one of those sad memories, and the fact that that he will live on in memory uh, means a lot to her. Harmon is buried on Woody Island at the place his family says he hoped to one day build a house. Major General Sachs told the crowd gathered at the armory ceremony that the new name marked a fresh chapter for the facility. This place has been here since the mid-60s. I want it to be more welcoming. I want this to be a place where the community can come and a permanent place to gather and be inspired by his story, all together at Danny's house. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. Thanks for joining me for Midday Magazine. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.